I think I would just say like definitely lean on my investors more. I think would be the thing because at first, you know, you're not, you're not sure like what are these guys really going to help me with, but really like, and think also just being patient. You know, it's going to take some time learning how to like pace myself. I think in the beginning, I had a tendency to maybe work too much. Now I understand it's more, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast, a weekly show where we bring you interviews and in the weeds expertise with today's B2B experts and thought leaders. You can see more about today's episode and guest by visiting our website at leadersofb2b.com. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B companies launch revenue generating podcasts. We schedule interviews between you and your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up for engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com. Hey there, leaders, and welcome back to another episode of Leaders of B2B. Today, super excited to have Patrick Chopson here on the show from Cove Tool. Patrick, thanks you for joining us today. Yeah, this is super cool. Good to talk to you. You as well. Um, yeah, very excited to dive in and learn more about uh, about CoveTool and what you guys are doing. Uh, for everyone in the audience who doesn't know um, what CoveTool is, can you give us kind of the quick 90-second overview of uh, what the business is and what you guys do? Sure, yeah. So CoveTool is a web-based application that helps architects, engineers, contractors, and building owners all make decisions around energy performance, carbon, basically anything that affects green building. So if you're doing a a building, you're building a new building, existing building, you probably need to make a choice about like the performance of it. And so our tool is really a platform that allows people to like really understand how all those decisions that they're making interact with each other. Because in the past, it might have been some human consultants that would tell you like, use this much daylight, oh, you need these kind of windows, you need this HVAC system, you need the lighting, all that different stuff. But all those decisions are being made separately. And there's all these data translation layers that are in between each of the different people so that you kind of lose data each time. So being able to bring it all together in one place means that the least skilled person can make an actual really good choice on their project and collaborate with everyone on the team. That's really cool. And so I th- I'll, I'll share kind of my interpretation or understanding, which I always like to do when diving into companies that are in the weeds because I, and I thought you guys website actually did a really great job of explaining this to someone who is not in the industry as well, but Kind of like the use case demo you saw where it's like, hey, you have this building, the building gets sun from this direction. Okay, so let's look at the return on if we install shades or if we install shutters or say tinted windows or we change the design of the building. So maybe this doesn't get as much shade or something. And so for you guys, it's going to show, okay, how is that going to impact the AC? How is that going to impact, you know, like the various energy systems within the building so you can figure out is it like a cost effective to use that is it going to be more sustainable or if you try a different material is that kind of the the overlying uh summary of what you guys are doing yeah yeah i mean buildings are 40 percent of carbon emissions so if you really want to stop climate change you really have to think about how we make buildings more efficient so for example like in new york city about 70 percent of your of your carbon emissions for the entire city of new york come from buildings and then the city of atlanta it's more like 60 percent which is where we're out of. So yeah, it's definitely like to make a good choice. Um, most of the time people were just guessing in the past. So by using data to kind of drive the decision-making forward, you can actually find combinations of components that make a green building cost less. 
um, and be higher performance, which is pretty cool. It's incredible. And so are you guys, I guess like at what point of projects are you guys coming in? Is this someone optimizing a building? Is this someone like while they're planning, they utilize the tool? At what stage of this are you, are you guys really fitting into the project? Right. So we really kind of cover the the whole arc of the project from start to finish. But the part that you would probably use it most would be in the beginning when you're just trying to figure out like, what are my goals or my objectives? You know, how am I going to meet code? Does the building fit in this corner of the property or that corner of the property? You know, like those types of questions um, are the things that most of the time people are going to use to answer. And then they're, they'll use it later once you're getting to the point where you have like actual materials and prices for things, then you can optimize for cost, um, which is kind of like the thing every developer wants to know, like, how do I make this building cheaper? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of the early state planning stages, like the positioning of the building, how are you going to design it? And then also the, you know, let's actually like construct or plan out the building, all the materials, the different things. Okay. And so I guess my question is, how did you get into this? Because that's, it's super niche, seems like a very complex system to build. And so uh, I'm curious to maybe understand a bit more of the origin story of, of how, like, how did you get up to the point of starting this company? Yeah. So uh, I went to school at Georgia Tech, um, met my actual one, my co-founder, Sandy Pahuja there. And, um, you know, we worked together for a while in some big architecture firms. And then we decided one day, we're like, hey, let's let's both quit our high paying consulting jobs and let's go start our own consulting practice. And that uh, we started that in Atlanta, Georgia in 2015. So we went out and we made our uh, consulting practice where we did all these simulations to kind of like help people make decisions. But then we realized that, you know, it only we can only do like 25 to 30 projects a year as a consultant. And there's thousands and thousands of buildings being built. So we were like, if we really wanted to change the arc of this carbon emissions problem, we'd have to make a software. And so then I got um, my brother involved, Daniel Chapson, who's our CTO. And then he came over from Sage, which is like, um, you know, giant accounting software company. And uh, he actually helped us build out the whole web-based application. Um, and so I'm basically the head of product and, you know, we're kind of like just basically automating the things that we used to do as consultants. Um, so that's kind of how we that's got incredible. started. <laughs> and so, yeah. And so you guys were doing this essentially as consultants first. I'm curious just to understand the impact technologies had, you know, where you guys said you could do 20, 25 projects a year. I'm curious how many projects roughly a year you guys tackling now that you've built out software to handle this? Yeah. So I think last year we did like over 12,000 projects were run through CoveTool. Um, they were all optimized. So that's, that's about the equivalent of 5.3 million tons of CO2E, which is like your embodied carbon uh, or just carbon that you're using from running the building. That's incredible. That's, that's, that's amazing. And that's the beauty of technology. Yeah. Uh, scale. <laughs> <laughs> and, I want to hit on this because it sounds like from what I'm hearing you say is that are it was this driven largely by a desire to make an impact in the carbon emissions? Um, what was kind of like the drive or the motive behind this? Because it seems like that's what I'm hearing kind of uh, from your your language there. Yeah. I mean, as a licensed architect myself, I ran my own architecture and practice too. Um, and one of the things I was always really interested in is the inter interrelationship between technology and design and how those two things go together and how people make decisions. So I think like from my standpoint, I'm always just trying to figure out how we build this architecture machine, which is like, you know, this intelligent, you know, helper that can help us as we design. 
and kind of understanding that like if you really want to change the world's systems you have to understand like how decisions are made and who makes them and what are the relationships between those different things and as i kind of did the research you know both in school and practice and then with my own consulting it was pretty obvious that like the decision making authority to make a project or a building or a city sustainable doesn't lie in one person you can't just do a magic wand and say that guy if he just changed things would make everything better it's really like everyone on the team shares responsibility uh, for making that decision, but they all don't have ultimate control. So the only way to really change that would be to make a system where everyone is inputting their the thing that they know and then having a software that actually manages that for them. So that's kind of like, to me, it's like the software is unto solving the problem more so than just making something. It's like the ultimate objective is to bend the curve on carbon emissions. That's awesome. And it's, it's so interesting to see where uh, I guess you guys are using technology to exponentially do what you guys, you would have just been limited. You know, you guys could be consultants, the best consultants in the world, but the best consultants in the world couldn't do 12,000 buildings a year. So right. uh, we, we, can, we can do in about like five minutes, uh, five to 15 minutes, what used to take like about one to two months uh, as a human consultant. So that kind of like gives you an idea of the the speed increase. <laughs> yeah. And, and I'm curious. So what is the the business model that you guys structured around this? Because again, it is essentially, I guess, replacing or augmenting kind of what was a very manual consultant done process before. And I'm curious, how have you guys structured the business model? Is it subscription per project base? Well, what does that look like? Yeah, it's like a B2B, but it's focused on like a yearly subscription um, so, you know, everybody buys, um, like a bulk number of users and then they're able to run as many simulations as they want, which is kind of like also, you know, the idea too, that like in the past people would try to have one or two people who are experts on the team. But again, if you have only two people, they can only do like 50 projects, maybe and the firm might do a hundred projects. So there's always that understanding that if we were going to make a big change, we have to train everyone to do this and we'd have to make it like automated so that the least skilled person could do it too. So our business model relies on more so on more people doing it rather than on a few niche people in the firm learning some new tool, if that makes sense. And so are you charging like per user pricing or is it like per projects that are running through? How do you throttle kind of pricing for customers? Yeah, so for us, we rely on a floating license. So it's like a like kind of like Netflix basically. So it just kind of like, it's all based on users and user counts. So like if you're a firm of like maybe a hundred people and you're using CoveTool, you probably don't need one for every person every day. Although as we introduce more features, we probably <laughs> make it so that you have to use it more. But that's kind of like our expansion model is like making stuff that makes people get value and then have to use the tool more. Okay, I like that. So it's kind of, you know, based on company size, flat, kind of rate that you guys kind of engage with them on. And then basically your goal is just to try to just get the most adoption, the most usage, because you guys ultimately, if the goal is coming back to the carbon change, you don't want to be like throttling features and having to kind of like upsell and do all these things. You just want to get this in and then just empower people and make it super valuable to them. Is that kind of the mentality? Exactly, exactly. So like the the end goal informs everything that we do from what features we make to like how the subscription model works to like, you know, you know, how our marketing is structured. It's more so focused on like changing hearts and minds about it, um, making bridges, you know, if someone's like, Hey, 
I'm not ready to buy the software, but I need just a little bit more week on my trial. We're like, well, will that help you get, you know, Dave, who's the skeptical guy on the tool? And they'll be like, yes. And we'll be like, okay, we'll extend it. So there's kind of like an idea of like doing good and, you know, while also making money is kind of like <laughs> kind of the idea. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And I'm curious on the, on the side of this, on the, the marketing side and putting the message out there, it seems like you guys have a really interesting, compelling message to get out there. I'm, I'm guess what has been working for you on the marketing side to go from, you know, 25 projects a year to 12,000, like that's yeah uh, probably a good amount of growth. And so w- what has helped you guys get the word out? Yeah, surprisingly, good old email marketing is the best way to reach people in the AAC industry. They're not very, uh, our architecture, engineering, construction, those people aren't very sophisticated in terms of like inbound marketing that comes to them. Like it's either they got like a pen at a trade show or they had like a flyer or somebody sent them an email basically. It's kind of like how they get their their stuff or maybe they see something on LinkedIn. But those are the only real channels that work. Um, you know, Facebook ads don't really work. Uh, Instagram is good just to make people, you know, kind of intrinsically look at things. But really it comes down to like an outbound like salesperson calling them and saying like, Hey, there's this cool thing you should look at. And that's usually, you know, the email and kind of the outbound, um, account executive is kind of like the, the thing that really gets people to actually start doing something different. Nice. That's incredible. And I'm curious, I guess, coming from, and so have you guys built up a, an outbound sales team and everything that is doing this? And I'm, I'm curious coming from the background, I guess, of being, consultants and technicians uh it seems like i guess none of you guys came from the background of really being like business owners i guess what did you have any challenges learning that side of scaling or growing the business or how did how did that go yeah so i think like the key is when you're a founder is to actually do all the jobs <laughs> that you um need to hire people for so that you at least become if not an expert at least you know what is it requires to be successful and what kind of messages work and don't work kind of rely on like the a b testing like hey let's try this let's see if that works you know of course you can read any number of business books or watch you know you know something or you know on youtube but at the end of the day it really comes down to that you know learning by fire is kind of like the thing that is really important to me in terms of being able to figure out like how to get get someone because if you use data and you care about people as you make all your decisions you kind of like can look at what you're doing measure it and say like well we tried this method it doesn't work let's try this other thing and so like i think when you're in a startup just being quick about like iterating through the different business models because we didn't arrive on our current business model right away obviously we tried like a b2c thing first we tried like uh, monthly subscriptions we tried project-based pricing we tried all those different things first before we got to the model that actually worked i'm curious maybe can you talk any more about some of those other things those um, failed attempts. Cause I think that that's always the interesting thing where we, we, we jumped right to the amazing, wonderful model that you guys have now, <laughs> but what were some of those things that you guys tried and uh, failed at along the way? Yeah. I think like one of the things that you always think is going to work uh, when you start an AC stuff is that you want to, you think like, Oh, some kind of a project-based pricing is going to work, but that is the one that almost never works because most of the time, the people who approve purchasing are different than the people who use the software in an architecture or engineering firm. You know, they're, they're very much like they're all the money is tightly controlled by the CFO or whoever's like the principal. So there's not a lot of room for purchasing things. So no matter how excited 
someone on a project level is you really have to make a more strategic play and you have to understand the buyer's personas on like all the different stages of you know the the grounds up kind of people in the firm getting excited is helpful to kind of like confirm the bias of the person who's purchasing but there's no substitute for going directly to the top and working your way down so i think like we had tried that b2c kind of like hey let's just like make it a free trial easy anybody can do it you know and then you know and we'll do project-based pricing and all those things and we really tried that for you know each business model we tried for like a month or two you know because you got to get signal first you know to see if like the thing that you're trying makes sense and then kind of like work work your way back from there and it's like okay that clearly our sales are at zero or everybody's churning because they, they weren't nurtured enough or you know things like that you have to really kind of work through until you get to the point where you're like okay we're going to go for a real B2B model where it's like we're going to do an enterprise-based sale. And that was the kind of the the aha moment, I guess, um, for us. Yeah, that makes sense. And I'm curious, have you seen any issues or challenges with this B2B model? Because I know that this is essentially, um, it's essentially the model that Salesforce, I think they kind of invented this into an extent where they would just go in and just say, hey, flat price, you get everything, like you get access to it all. And that was like a very kind of new approach. Um, and they still do that to some extent. Um, but, you know, there, I think there becomes challenges as companies grow, hit go through rapid growth. And like, how do you renegotiate this? Like we gave you access to everything. So what, what challenges have you kind of seen or hit with that model at all? Yeah, I think it, it's just a model that's really new to the AEC industry, though, uh, the whole flat rate thing they're used to being charged like per simulation or per project or all these different models that they really hate or they're also being uh they're used to getting like seat based pricing where it's like you have to buy a seat for every single person which makes it really hard as because you know projects are always ramping up and down at firms um they're never it's not like a stable amount of work you know one team may be really needing something one month and the next month they have zero need for it so kind of like adopting these more flexible licensing structures and uh, the more kind of like focused like percentage of users makes a lot more sense. You know, it fits better with the business model, um, which is highly variable and project their their work is project based, but their actual software spend is yearly based. So kind of like understanding there's like a dichotomy between what they how they buy versus like how their work comes in. That's fascinating. One of the other things I'm, I'm very intrigued, I guess, from your role in product as well is I saw you guys are doing, you know, have a lot of integrations. It seems like from what I see, this the goal of this tool is that it lives in whatever software they're using, whether it's AutoCAD or whatever tools they may be using. And um, I'm curious how you guys have gone about the just the integration process, choosing what tools to integrate, challenges that come from, you know, essentially being an add-on tool or stuff like that. How have you guys handled that? Yeah. So the, the way we think about it is like, we looked at like, here's the percentage of, of uh, different uh, of market share for the different 3d modeling applications that everyone's using. So this is like the core business software that they're using. It's some kind of 3d modeling tool, whether that's Revit or SketchUp or Rhino or whatever it is that they're using. And we're like, okay, where's our target market? So again, using data, it's like we're going to go for the U.S. software market, which is 40% of the total market for AEC software. And then what percentage of tools are used? And then we'll build the top three. So we cover at least 80% from the get-go. And then as we go, like if we go in a new market like Europe, 
there's a completely different percentage swap there where they're going to use ArchiCAD instead of Revit or something, then we're going to build that plugin so we can capture that market. So it's more about like, how do we get more people sharing information? Because every single firm uses a slightly different suite of software to achieve their project delivery. So you really need, and the engineers use different kind of software than the architects. So they typically have to remodel their stuff to go from one person to the next. So it's like a very laborious 20, 30 hour process to like send information from one, from an architect to an engineer. So by putting a central software where you can send everything to in the same format, then allows them to collaborate without remodeling. So it's really, for us, it's about interoperability and making a, a platform where information flows through and not we're not the end, we're just the, the connection in the middle, basically. And that's why we have so many integrations. Okay, I love that. One of the other things that just kind of came to mind with that as well is that you guys have really, with that, kind of you talk about expanding to Europe or other international geographies and everything. And what challenges or hard parts have come along with, I guess, the going international outside of the USA? Yeah. So I think like the biggest challenge is actually, it's not too much of a challenge because, you know, because US dominates the the industry so much, like a big American firms kind of dominate the big projects around the world. So generally, even if I go to India or, or Japan, there's a very similar work style and workflow because everyone is kind of like educating this global architectural engineering project delivery kind of format. So, and also the energy codes or the standards are set a lot of times by the US or by international bodies like ISO or ASHRAE, um, things like that. So it does make it fairly easy to build an AAC tool if you reference those global standards and build everything in metric and you know do things like that, which is kind of like what we did. So we've always had a vision that it will be an international tool. So we make it so that it automatically reconfigures itself with local pricing and local standards and you know, making sure that the weather files for the daylight load for every location, you know, things like that. But I think the biggest challenge um, is oftentimes just kind of going through new codes that maybe use different standards and then having to digitize those. Um, that's, that does take some time to kind of understand. I think like, for example, Japan has the most difficult thing because you just can't read Japanese if you're not if you're not like most people can't like i can't so we have to ask them like hey where where is this section in your code about air changes per hour things like that for your room so we have to ask them more questions than we would otherwise have to yeah that's interesting um it may seem like a silly question but i'm just also very curious because i'm not a developer but when you start going into like coding in japan like as they're like writing languages and stuff and it's like in another piece like language there so like how does how does it actually work from the code standpoint? Do they still go back to like Roman numerals? Like, I, uh, this seems like a naive question. But I'm just curious, like yeah. how that works in like coding in Japanese. Yeah. Well, most everybody knows English around the world who are in architecture and engineering, okay. for example, because it's like you, everyone has to share project information. Like, if I'm a if I'm a firm in Hong mm -hmm. Kong and I want to also do projects in San Francisco, I kind of need to make my drawings in Roman numeral formats, probably. So there's kind of like a, a continuity between the world's firms because they all have any large firm has multiple offices around the world. So like New York firms have offices in Shanghai and offices in San Francisco, offices in Kansas City. You know, there's like so they can basically work around the clock on different projects and stuff. So there's kind of like a continuity in terms of that. But like some people can't obviously can't read English. So um, 
Google Translate is really helpful if you have a web app. You can translate the whole page and our users say it, it reads correctly. So it's interesting. <laughs> right. That works. Yeah. And there's also things like for support though, like for example, there's a thing called localize that you can integrate with like your intercom kind of chat uh, where you can actually chat with people in other languages too, uh, which is helpful. It's amazing. One of the other things that I, I, I've heard as a theme coming up from uh, what you've been saying that just throughout this over and over is just data. When you talked about this for, um, you know, the, how you're growing or how you're expanding users or the integrations you choose, it's just very clear that you guys seem to be making many decisions, kind of always looking at the data. And I'm curious how you guys think about that, how you review that as a team, kind of what, like, what is your process as leaders of the company to really gather and make decisions on data. Yeah, I think the most important thing is to always understand the unit economics of whatever you're doing. So like, does this make sense from a math standpoint is usually what we ask first. Does the math check out? And then let's work our way back from the math to a strategy. Like if we know that we need to sell X amount of software in a certain location to actually change how people are doing things, then we need to say like, okay, let's think about how many people we need to contact, what's our conversion rate from like top of funnel of who we contact down all the way to the bottom and making sure that we're measuring all those typical numbers that investors like to see as well, but not just measuring them for the purpose of like measuring them so you can get funding, but measuring it because it actually does inform what your strategy is or what you're doing, like understanding why and building out the business model just as rigorously as the software. I think is really important, like having a good spreadsheet, checking it twice, you know, getting people who are more finance gurus uh, to take a look at what you're doing and say, does this spreadsheet make sense? Does this, you know, is the expenses that we're spending, you know, does that make, uh, does that meet the business model? You know, our, what's our, for our customer acquisition cost, does that make sense? You know, do we need to have a different customer acquisition strategy? So really, I think being super numbers focused but also making sure that you always just kind of do the math before you do something first. Because a lot of people like to use the feels, which maybe is good for a B2C product, but maybe for a B2B product, you gotta really be focused on like the numbers. Cause you can't just like rely on accidentally getting a hundred extra sales, but it's like each sale is like really big when it's a B2B um, thing, especially when you're small. Yeah, no, that makes sense. That's uh, <laughs> I love that kind of just mentality. Again, it's just look at the numbers, see if the numbers make sense, then step back into strategy. And like you said, I think having external people look at those, because I think the, the thing that's very possible to do with data is you just look at data and you just assume that you're making correct assumptions. But that I think is it's the assumptions you make in those projections, I think is the hard part. And so it sounds like that's where you're using external advisors to check it and be like, does this make sense? Or are my assumptions off here? Yeah. Like really making use of your investors, I think is important because, you know, maybe they have people in their network or they, or they themselves are good at analyzing deals or how, how something should work. Or, you know, sometimes something we found successful was even just hiring a fractional CFO to review stuff when you can't afford a full, um, chief financial officer, like actually just having someone who that's all they do, just review your stuff for one quarter, you know, that's can be super helpful as well to kind of make sure that are we measuring the things that we should be like, I'm an architect by training and an engineer by training. Am I really going to know everything about finance? Probably not. 
So I want to make sure that like I have other people checking my work. I love that. That makes a ton of sense. That's great insight. And one of the other things that you kind of just hit on as well is like something you guys have gone through some capital raising as well. And I'm curious again, how was the experience of that or what was the process? Maybe can you talk, walk us through the story of just raising capital there? Oh, sure. Yeah. So at first when we were a consulting practice, we were just self-funding everything, bootstrapping and just taking the profits from the consulting group and transferring them to the software. So at that point, it was just the three co-founders. So it's not a lot of expenses, but it's just like building stuff, trying things. And then um, pretty soon, you know, we were like, you know, maybe we should get some investors, but you know, obviously I don't know anybody who's raised venture capital. My, none of the partners do. We're not like coming from money. You know, we're all, you know, for myself, especially I come from a very lower, lower income kind of background. So I don't know anybody in finance or anything like that. So we were just kind of like doing internet research and we applied for this thing called the Atlanta Startup Battle, which is like a tech incubator here in Atlanta, um, where they do like, you know, send your thing in, come and do a pitch. And then if you get picked, then they choose the top five, one out of the top five. Um, so we went and did that. And that's how we got our initial funding. And then that investor connected us to other people. Um, and that's how we got our seed round um, was from after our kind of pre-seed was just like a little investment from this incubator. So that kind of helped us get in the right chain of people to like understand like, okay, what are investors looking for? You know, we don't even know. We just know how the business works. We know how the product works, but how's the finance work? You know, that's something that I think we're able to start asking questions. Like I think one of our initial investors is Paul Judge. Uh, and he's out one of the really big guys here in Atlanta in terms of um, venture capital people. So he kind of got us connected to a lot of other folks initially. Yeah. And you, you talked about utilizing your investors. I guess I'm curious, what other ways have you utilized your investors? It sounds like, I mean, your first investor led to multiple more rounds of investment, but how else did you leverage them to kind of get to where you guys were wanting to go? Sure. Yeah. So um, one of our other investors in the seed rounds, we had four, and one of them, he was like a real kind of spreadsheets guy. So I think like when you're looking for investors in your company or whatever, you got to find like each investor should be a little bit different. And definitely someone who's kind of like Mr. Finance, you know, really understands like everything and can analyze a spreadsheet. You want somebody like that on your investor team. You want somebody who's more of a product visionary kind of investor, another guy who's maybe more of a, you know, an ops type person who's maybe built a business before. So, you know, like each of those different types of people really, we leaned on them for different questions uh, that we had and they helped us kind of like clean up what we were doing develop a process that made sense that, you know, you could really see how, you know, sales come in one side and profits come out the other, or, you know, potential comes out the other side, maybe, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, is the thing. Uh, so that, that really helped us get us in a good place in that seed round. So then when we went to raise a series A, we had a really super compelling story with like, you know, a company that has no churn and it's just growing, you know, really expanding each month, all the different cohorts of people who've bought over time. Uh, things like that. Yeah. You just said, I think, magical words. Did you say no churn? Yeah. <laughs> we have a very sticky product. <laughs> <laughs> so do, do you, I mean, do you guys have any churn at this point or is it really still like a yeah, it's, no churn it's just, product? It's just like less than 0.01% is our, is our churn. So that's that, like, that crazy. is incredible. Yeah. <laughs> so is, is that just a result of uh, yeah. Can you maybe just talk more about like what, what makes that, uh, why you have that level of churn? Right. So the most important part is customer success. So like one, of course, obviously we got to deliver software that people need and believe in and see the features growing and they want to expand. 
that's number one, that's very important. But number two is like having like a team of people who actually call your users each month and figure out, figure out like what problems are you having? What things aren't working? How can we get you more training? How can we ask? Because if we get more people trained with our product, then it means that they expand. So we're really focused on like uh, calling more folks on that company that has purchased and said, hey, there's this new thing that you have. Why don't you come to a webinar? You know, and that really helps them kind of like, oh, yeah, I like this. Oh, man, I need this for my project. And then when it comes time to renew again, they're like the, you know, the leadership team is asking everyone, hey, have we been using this Cove tool thing? And they'll be like, oh, yeah, we use it for this project and that project. And it's like, don't get rid of it. I need more. And then they'll and they buy more, you know, so then you don't have that churn. Um, but it's a and because it's a yearly subscription for us, you really have to start, you know, from day one that they buy it and making sure that they're having success at each step along the way. And like also telling people like, here's how successful look, like here's your plan for your 30, 60, 90 days using the software. Then we're gonna have a quarterly check-in, you know, kind of like giving people a schedule that they just like plug it into their outlook and then forget about it. That's incredible. And and so do you have kind of some a team overseeing this and have you guys built this out or did you guys hire customer success? Did you guys do this role yourself first and then hire people to replace you or how, how'd that go? Right. So at first it's, you know, it's co-founders doing customer success. Um, <laughs> um, but then uh, over time, then we were like, yeah, we got to get like some actual people. Um, so we got on, uh, we actually had some folks who were really good doing something else in the company. So they're always, we already like kind of trusted them. And then we we're like, okay, why don't you start doing customer success and here's how to do it. And then we would say like, here's what we're doing. Let's make a process. So I think like what's really important is making a process document where you document everything that you do and why you do it. Give that to the first person to do that job and say like, okay, you're going to do this job every day now. I was doing it 10% of my day before and you're doing this full time. So update this document. So when we hire the next person, they'll have an even better idea what they're supposed to do and so on. So you kind of make processes that people update themselves in each department. So then you you get less and less involved with, but the team overall is improving itself um, is really important, I think. It's incredible that, man, that's a headline, 0% churn right there. Yeah. So that is not something you hear often in the software world. And that is, I think, every software owner's dream. So congratulations on that. That's incredible to hear. Yeah. Yeah, we, we grew like by 500% last year. So, because, you know, like, you know, everyone's thinking like, oh man, this climate change thing is real. You know, so they're all, make, like all your investment firms like BlackRock and, you know, your uh, Morgan Stanley, all those people who have big portfolios of like huge and real estate investments are like, so how much carbon is this actually using in my portfolio? And then like that eventually trickles down to like, the operators of building portfolios and then to the architect and the architect's like, Oh dang, I got to measure this now. Like, Oh man, <laughs> you know? So then it, it's like, so then it's kind of like coming from the top to them instead of like, Oh, I want to do something good. Let me push against this massive institutional, you know, momentum against me. Now the momentum's coming, the headwinds are blowing from behind now. instead of sailing into the wind, you could say. Yeah, that's incredible. Well, it's super exciting. So as we wrap up here, one of the questions that I, I always like to ask her at the end is if you could go back, you know, five, six years at the beginning of your entrepreneurial journey here, what advice would you give your younger self? Oh, man, I think I would just say, like, definitely lean on my investors more, I think would be the thing, because at first, like, you know, you're not, you're not sure, like, what are these guys really going to help me with? But really, like, I think also just being patient, like, you know, it's going to take some time learning how to, like, pace myself. I think in the beginning, 
I had a tendency to maybe work too much. Now I understand it's more, it's a marathon, not a sprint. So definitely make sure to maintain good mental health, you know, eat right, sleep well, you know, <laughs> those are the things that I think I would have advised myself before. But I, cause you know, like architects have a, a culture around overwork, which is where I kind of come out of where we go to school and we work like, you know, 48 hours to like finish a project or something for school, you know, and we don't sleep, you know, that kind of thing. So there's kind of like already a, this culture of overwork. That's one thing I really have, I think over the last couple of years, at least really dialed back from that and focused more on sustainable work strategies for myself, but also making sure that the team is focused on that. And I think the other thing I would have focused on more as well is just like understanding more uh, how, how people react or think about as a, as a manager. I think like really understanding how to manage people more. Um, I think like at a very architect's mentality, it's like, you know, just work, do your thing. I expect everyone to do the right thing and be smart about doing it. But like, you know, I think if I had gone back in time, I would have told myself like, hey, you need to spend some time like actually understanding how people who are non-architects work. That would have been the thing that really helped me out. <laughs> yeah. Interpersonal skills and uh, management dynamics is I feel like you always have to learn those things the hard way in some aspects. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> awesome. Um, well, this is absolutely incredible. Super fascinating story, Patrick. Um, for anyone that wants to go find out more about Cove Tool or yourself, anything online, what's the best place to go find you online? Yeah. If they just go to cove.tools, type that in their web browser, it'll come right up on our website. And that'll have like kind of an, a really good overview, but also um, you can get in there and actually watch webinars, get a trial, you know, all that good stuff. And definitely if you're a lot of people who are maybe aren't architects or involved in building, just asking people who are in this thing is like, Hey, have you heard about this can be really helpful for them? Cause maybe they're like struggling right now. It's like, Oh man, I, I need to do this, but it's so expensive. You know, there's kind of like a big problem out there that this really solves. Yeah. That's incredible. Love what you guys are doing and love the mission and everything. Well, uh, Patrick, thank you again for taking the time to come on here. This was absolutely incredible interview and I appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leaders of B2B podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating. And as always, you can see more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leadersofb2b.com. <laughs>